Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, suicide, assault, and kidnapping that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The saying goes, behind every great man is a great woman. But let's be honest, many of these women deserve far more credit than the men before them. That's certainly the case with Catherine Kelly. History may remember her as the wife of Prohibition-era gangster Machine Gun Kelly, but hers is a story worth telling on its own. A drop-dead stunner with criminal brains to match, Catherine was running schemes long before she ever met her notorious husband. She hungered to live a life of luxury and decadence, and she'd never apologize for those desires or for the things she did to make her dreams come true. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're looking into the story of Catherine Kelly. We'll examine how Catherine's love of the finer things led her to the criminal underbelly of the 1920s and 30s. We'll also see how her crimes soared to new heights once she became Mrs. Machine Gun Kelly. Next week, we'll watch as the Kellys attempt the most audacious crime sprees in U.S. history and learn how their actions shaped the future of law enforcement. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Our story begins in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi. 
dusty and isolated, Saltillo was so far east of the river, it rode the border of Alabama. The small town was barely more than a collection of farms, with a population of only a couple hundred people. It was there, in 1904, that newlyweds James and Ora Brooks welcomed their first child, a daughter they named Cleo Lyra May. There aren't many specifics about Cleo's childhood, but it's safe to say her life was far from easy. You see, the Brooks were small-time farmers, and in the early 1900s, that meant endless hours of backbreaking work. While people in the big cities could afford the latest fashions and dine at fancy restaurants, the Brooks family was barely scraping by. Over time, Cleo became acutely aware of her socioeconomic status and decided she wanted more. Desperate for a different future, she dreamed of being one of those city women, beautifully dressed and glittering with jewelry. But more than anything else, she wanted to be somebody other than Cleo. At some point, while still a schoolgirl, she decided to change her name. Before we continue with the psychology for this episode, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. According to psychologist Jean Twenge, a name is more than just a name. That's because it can become a symbol of the self. As such, when people dislike their name, they tend to not be well-adjusted psychologically and have lower self-esteem. This can lead to a host of negative outcomes, such as anxiety and depression. To combat these feelings, many change their names to one that matches their inner identity. To Cleo, her name probably sounded like the name of a girl destined to spend her whole life on a farm. Perhaps it was hard for her to imagine a cosmopolitan existence with a name she thought better suited to a country bumpkin. So Cleo gave herself the most sophisticated one she could think of, Catherine. As Catherine Hepburn proved in the 1920s, it was a name that sung with star quality. It was elegant, grand, timeless. After all, it was a name shared by two wives of Henry VIII and a handful of saints. But to truly make herself stand out, she opted for the ultra-modern variant, spelling her name with a Y instead of I-N-E. The staccato of the two syllables, Catherine, gave the classic moniker a modern edge, like a pop of bullets fired from a gun. As if the universe were rewarding her boldness, when she was nine years old, Catherine's family moved farther into the Wild West to Coleman, Texas. Though it was still a small town, Coleman was much larger than Saltillo. For Catherine, it probably felt like the big city. But the excitement was short-lived. After the move, James and Aura divorced. And while it wasn't unheard of, the sudden dissolution of a marriage was still somewhat scandalous in the early 1900s. Even still, Aura held her head high and pushed forward. She found a job as a hotel manager, which came with a room where she and Catherine lived. To Catherine, hotel living must have been a dream come true. She likely crossed paths with affluent visitors on the regular, people like doctors, lawyers, and wealthy world travelers. But the dull reality wasn't nearly as grand as her fantasies. Many of the guests made her keenly aware of how little she really had. While they all slept under the same roof, it was abundantly clear that she and her mother were simply the help. 
As she watched her mother struggle to provide for her family, Catherine made up her mind. There was no way she'd end up like Aura. She was determined to be the one calling the shots, staying in lavish hotels and being waited on. But Catherine didn't fancy working hard to reach her goals. Even though she believed she was destined for finer things, she knew school wasn't how she'd get there. It was boring and stuffy, and no one expected a woman to be book smart anyway. So just after the seventh grade, when she would have been around 13, Catherine dropped out of school. Fortunately, the teenage stunner had other options. Less than a year later, while visiting family in Oklahoma, Catherine met 16-year-old Lonnie Fry. The son of a preacher, he had a good head on his shoulders and the physique of a laborer. The two were instantly smitten, and flirtation quickly turned to talks of marriage. While still very much children themselves, Catherine and Lonnie tied the knot. Soon after that, they had a daughter named Pauline. This should have been the start of a new, exciting life. Catherine had the love of a good man, the blessing of a beautiful child, and the freedom to run her own household. But she wanted more. Lonnie worked long hours for little money, which meant that Catherine was hardly the kept woman she'd longed to be. After two years of dismal reality, the bloom was off the rose, and the couple divorced. Catherine took custody of Pauline, and the teenager started her new life as a single mother. Fortunately, she had her own mother to lean on. When the divorce was finalized, she and Pauline returned to Coleman and moved back into the tiny hotel room with Aura. But things were not as she'd left them. By the time Catherine was back in Coleman, the Roaring Twenties was upon them, and the mood in America was changing drastically. The end of World War I filled people with a celebratory spirit, and an economic boom meant the party never stopped. Flapper girls in particular were the life of the party. They wore their hair like they wore their skirts, short, and they hung around bars and gambling halls. They also drank, smoked, swore, and did other things as freely as men did. In short, flappers challenged the norms of traditional femininity. Enthralled by the exciting image of the free-spirited 1920s woman, the town of Coleman suddenly felt suffocatingly small. Aching to make her mark, Catherine knew she had to leave. So after just a couple of years, she set out on her next adventure in Oklahoma City with her daughter in tow. It was here, in the hustle and bustle of the big city, Catherine likely cemented her hard partying ways. It's possible she partook in copious amounts of drinking, dancing, and non-stop debauchery. But partying wasn't the only thing on her mind. She had to support her little family, so she opened a one-woman beauty salon in a room she rented. However, it was far from the easy living she was looking for. To find that, Catherine needed someone else to bring home the bacon. So, shortly after moving to the city, she gave marriage another shot. But the relationship lasted about as long as the first, and the result was the same. Divorce. At this point, the divorce rate had been steadily climbing in the U.S. 
Even still, two divorces for one woman was something to be frowned on. Catherine and her lifestyle lent credence to the growing fear that the moral fabric of America was unraveling. Stoking this fear was the growing temperance movement, which sought to prohibit the production and consumption of alcohol. According to agitators, alcohol was the root cause of all social ills, divorce included. The movement's biggest victory was the 18th Amendment, which banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of all liquor throughout the United States. Of course, making something illegal isn't a guaranteed way to stop it. Instead, the making and selling of booze went underground, which made it more fun for those determined to break the rules. These renegades gathered in illicit jazz clubs and secret speakeasies. Catherine, of course, frequented all the hotspots, and it was there that she started rubbing elbows with criminals, ranging from the petty thief to the professional crook. Around 1925, she met a gangster known as J.E. Barnett. He seemed to be making good, easy money, and that's exactly what Catherine longed for in a man. By this stage, 21-year-old Catherine was struggling. She was likely up at all hours of the night, drinking and partying. And if she wasn't hung over the next day, she was exhausted, and her salon business suffered for it. Desperate to provide for her six-year-old daughter, she started dabbling in sex work, and it appears this opened her mind to other criminal activity. Given her slow slide into criminal activity, Catherine was likely experiencing the phenomenon of ego depletion. In psychological terms, the ego is the part of the personality that makes decisions. According to psychologists Roy Baumeister and Kathleen Voss, a person with a healthy ego will keep social norms front of mind when deciding on a course of action. However, when a person lacks essential resources like time, money, or rest, the ego gets weaker until it ultimately depletes. By the mid-1920s, Catherine was exhausted, broke, and spending a lot of time with criminals. In other words, she was psychologically primed to begin her criminal career. Together, she and Barnett the gangster hatched a lucrative scheme. Catherine would lure unsuspecting victims, usually wealthy businessmen, with her charms and good looks. She'd invite them to join her somewhere private, like the nearby lake, for a late-night swim. Once they arrived, Catherine would disappear and Barnett would rob the mark at gunpoint. The scam ran flawlessly until Catherine got greedy and chose a target too close to home. One of her neighbors was a woman named Bessie, and she made decent money as a stenographer. She also wore a diamond ring that Catherine fancied for herself. So one night in June of 1925, Catherine invited Bessie to join her and Pauline for dinner and a drive. At some point when they were driving by the lake, Catherine pulled over, claiming to have tire trouble. While Catherine checked the tire and Pauline dozed in the back seat, two men leapt from the bushes and robbed Bessie. They took everything she had, including her diamond. The plan had been a complete success, or at least that's what it seemed like at first. But then Bessie realized that she recognized one of her assailants. She'd seen Barnett hanging around Catherine's room quite a lot. 
Then, when she reported the robbery to the police, she learned she wasn't the only one who'd told them a similar story. It turned out a previous Mark had filed a report almost identical to hers. It didn't take long for investigators to put things together, and Catherine and Barnett were arrested for the robberies. For the first time in her life, Catherine was about to face consequences for wanting more than she had. She was about to learn a steep lesson, but not the one the authorities were trying to teach. Up next, Catherine goes deeper into the criminal world. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem, he was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In June of 1925, 21-year-old Catherine Kelly was arrested for the first time. She and her partner in crime, J.E. Barnett, were charged with at least two counts of robbery. The evidence against Catherine was particularly overwhelming. Not only was she linked to both crimes, she'd been identified by her own neighbor, so her conviction was swift. But for some reason, that decision was thrown out on appeal. After this close call with justice, Catherine decided it was time to get out of the city. So she and her six-year-old daughter Pauline packed up their bags and returned to Coleman, Texas. But that wasn't their last stop. By that stage, Catherine's mother Aura was engaged to a wealthy rancher named Robert Boss Shannon. He owned a farm in Paradise, a town over 100 miles north of Fort Worth, and he was doing a lot more than raising cattle and growing crops. In the era of prohibition, bootlegging was the criminal enterprise. Miles away from nosy neighbors and the authorities, a farm was the ideal base of operations. Boss made a killing manufacturing illicit liquor on his isolated property and was eager to have both Aura and Catherine to join the family venture. After nearly going to prison for robbery, you might think Catherine would have hesitated joining another criminal operation. But at this point, she developed a craving for fast money. So rather than being scared straight, Catherine dove in deeper. She moved to paradise and became a rum runner for Boss. And she was perfect for the job. The beauty dazzled her way into all the important dives and clubs in Texas. Soon, she knew everyone who was anyone in the business. Who bought, who sold, who was small-time, and who was big news. One of those people was Charlie Thorne, a mid-tier bootlegger who worked the same turf as Catherine. It could have been the start of a gang war, but Catherine was a lover, not a fighter. So rather than make Charlie an enemy, 
she made him family. In 1926, 22-year-old Catherine followed her heart down the aisle for the third time. She'd steadily improved her prospects with each marriage, and Charlie was no exception. He was so well off, he bought Catherine a $30,000 house in Fort Worth. And thanks to his exceptional wealth, she could finally live out her fantasies. Clothes, jewels, cars, whatever she wanted was hers. Of course, some sacrifices had to be made. For instance, Catherine left Pauline on the Paradise Farm with Aura and Boss. This was probably for the best, because her romance with Charlie was, let's say, passionate. Both of them were extremely jealous and hot-tempered. In fact, Catherine threatened to kill her husband so many times, it became something of a running joke. Among the tumult, the pair kept up the bootlegging. Catherine managed the deliveries, while Charlie stayed behind, tending to other parts of the business. Or so he said. After about two years of marriage, when Catherine was on one of her runs, she caught wind that Charlie was cheating on her back home. When she heard the news, she flew into a jealous rage, feeling the bitter sting of betrayal. A 2017 study published in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution found a strong connection between feelings of jealousy and the part of the brain associated with social pain. According to neuroscientists, this pain affects the brain in the same way as a physical hurt. Needless to say, Catherine was hurt by her husband's infidelity. For most of her life, she'd been an object of desire. And if being desired was the ultimate form of validation, then infidelity was the ultimate insult. Her brain likely processed her husband's betrayal as both a literal and metaphorical slap in the face. And she was determined to make him feel the same. She took off like a bat out of hell, screaming that she was on her way home to kill that goddamned Charlie Thorne. And this time, she meant it. The fight that broke out when she got home was worse than all of their others. Eventually, Catherine picked up the phone and called the police. But when they arrived, the cops found Charlie with a bullet in his head. After they searched the home, they found a note left in a typewriter. It read, I love my wife. I can't live without her, so I'm ending it all. The thing was, Charlie was illiterate. Everyone knew that, but it seems no one was interested in working too hard on this case. After all, who was going to miss a criminal like Charlie Thorne? At first, the coroner determined Catherine had probably shot him in self-defense. But a judge ultimately ruled his death a suicide. And from a legal standpoint, that was that. But to everyone else, Charlie's death was suspicious at best. For starters, Catherine had so much to gain from his death. In addition to the house, Charlie left her somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000, which would be around $200,000 today. He also had a $1,000 life insurance policy that was meant to go to his parents, but as they'd already passed, Catherine pocketed that, too. 
Newly single and flush with cash, Catherine returned to her nightlife ways with a vengeance. She became a regular at every jazz club and speakeasy in Fort Worth, and she spent her money with reckless abandon. Fortunately for Catherine, she knew how to keep her pockets lined. At some point, she returned to her old schemes, luring unsuspecting businessmen out to abandoned roads to be ambushed by thieves. And that wasn't all she was up to. As much as she loved shopping, she didn't always like to pay. Even though she could afford whatever her heart desired, sometimes it was just more fun to go for a five-finger discount. Catherine was flying high, feeling untouchable, but what goes up always comes back down. At some point, while using the pseudonym Dolores Whitney, she was arrested for and convicted of shoplifting. But as ever, Catherine's luck prevailed. She was released on a technicality of some kind and was never required to give back what she stole. It was yet another close call but it didn't scare her straight. Not even a visit to an actual prison could do that. In fact, jail, it seemed, was a great place to meet men. Around 1927, 23-year-old Catherine paid a visit to her uncles, who were doing time in Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas. There, she made the acquaintance of one of their fellow inmates, the very handsome 32-year-old George Kelly. Though they met only briefly, Catherine made quite the impression. George asked Catherine's uncles for her address, and the two started exchanging letters. Initially, their flirtation was based on mutual attraction, but after a while, Catherine realized she and George had much more in common than their looks. Unlike most of the other gangsters she knew, George seemed like he might be on her level. The son of a middle-class Catholic family, he'd graduated high school and even attended a little college. But just like Catherine, he didn't see the appeal of staying on the straight and narrow. He dropped out before he graduated and had been wheeling and dealing in the criminal world ever since. It was a match made in heaven. But Catherine wasn't the type to wait around for a man. So while penning love letters to George, Catherine started seeing a bootlegger known as Little Steve. He was a big deal in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, which allowed Catherine to return to her old turf. Before long, the couple were running a profitable business together. That is until Catherine got a letter that changed everything. In February of 1930, after three long years of nothing but writing, George announced that he was getting out. While she'd found a good partner in Steve, the thought of seeing George made Catherine giddy as a schoolgirl. Of course, she hid those feelings from Steve when she told him that she had a friend who was looking for a job. Catherine stressed that before he'd landed in jail, George had been running a profitable, multi-state bootlegging operation, so it only made sense for him to join their venture. At some point, Steve agreed, and George made his way to Oklahoma. When Catherine and George finally met in person, the embers that had burned for years grew into full-on flames. Steve may have been suspicious of Catherine's intentions, but hiring George was ultimately good for his bottom line. 
With his charming good looks and clean-cut style, George fit in with respectable society in a way most gangsters didn't. Known as the society bootlegger, he sold liquor from a briefcase, taking the goods directly to wealthy clientele. This influx of well-to-do customers improved Steve and Catherine's operation. But even though George was great for business, Steve probably should have kept a closer eye on him and Catherine. Because in September of 1930, while Steve was out of town, 35-year-old George took 26-year-old Catherine out to dinner. Before their drinks even arrived, he spontaneously proposed. She accepted without a second's hesitation. They rushed back to little Steve's place and stuffed all of Catherine's things into Steve's Cadillac, which they took to Minnesota. By this stage, there were more than a couple of warrants out for George's arrest, and probably Catherine's too, so they needed to keep government paperwork to a minimum. Fortunately, George had connections up north who could arrange a hasty wedding. Afterwards, the newlyweds returned to Texas and spent their honeymoon doing their two favorite things, partying and shopping. Between the two of them, the Kellys could spend a fair amount of money. Their wardrobes alone were worth thousands, and that was just one of their expenses. So once the fun was had, they needed to get back to business. Unfortunately, by the 1930s, the power of the temperance movement was waning. The end of prohibition was in sight, and bootlegging wasn't as lucrative as it had been. But George had a plan. He'd made a few friends in prison who dabbled in a much more profitable business than liquor. They robbed banks, and the Kellys wanted in on the action. Up next, the changing landscape of crime pushes Catherine in a daring new direction. Now back to the story. In 1930, 26-year-old Catherine Kelly finally married her perfect match, 35-year-old gangster George Kelly. Together, they embodied the ideal image of the Prohibition-era underworld. They were a gorgeous couple, living it up with the finest fashion, diamonds, and Cadillacs. But with bootlegging on the way out, they needed a new way to stay flush. So after a quick trip to Minnesota for an even quicker marriage ceremony, George reached out to some folks he'd met during his time at Leavenworth Penitentiary. His friends put him in contact with Harvey Bailey, the most successful bank robber of the period. Bailey took George under his wing, passing along all of his hard-earned criminal wisdom. The trick, he said, was to focus on mid-sized towns and little cities, places where there'd be enough money to make it worth stealing, but not so much that local police were likely to be on guard. Bailey taught George how to study the banks, how to track business activity like payroll deposits. With a few days of careful observation, George could nearly pinpoint the day the take would be at its highest. And soon, George could too. He absorbed all the lessons Bailey had to offer. Well, all except the most important one. Don't ever work with women. It wasn't that Bailey thought women were too delicate for the job. Rather, he thought the modern woman was loose in all sorts of ways, especially when it came to their lips. In short, he believed women were gossips. 
And okay, Catherine liked to chat and share secrets, but she was also a major asset. She was smart, she was cunning, and she was ruthless. Once George struck out on his own, he was more than happy to include her in his schemes. While George and another associate went inside a bank, she waited in the parking lot, manning the getaway car. She was often disguised as a man and armed just in case of any emergencies. According to the FBI, she was an expert shot. We don't know how or when she learned, but between growing up in Texas and years of dating gangsters, she was bound to pick up a thing or two. For his part, George wasn't all that interested in firearms. He carried them for the power they conveyed, but he used them only sparingly. Unlike his wife, and unlike many other bank robbers of the day, George had never killed anyone, and he never intended to. But guns were part of the gangster ethos. Even now, the image of the 1930s gangster in a suit and fedora wielding a Thompson machine gun, or Tommy gun for short, is iconic. That's thanks in no small part to Catherine. Though it's true gangsters already favor the machine gun for its sheer power, she was the one who put it in the hands of her husband, George Machine Gun Kelly. Purchased secondhand from a pawn shop in Fort Worth, Catherine gave George his first Tommy gun and urged him to practice it at her family's farm. She then used her love of gossip to build up George's reputation as a fearsome gangster with deadly aim. Catherine boasted about her man every chance she got. She talked him up at all the speakeasies, telling tales of his expert marksmanship. According to Catherine, her husband could shoot walnuts off fence posts at 30 feet. One of her favorite stories was that George was such a good shot, he could write his name with his gun, which he called the Little Stenog, short for stenographer. This detail quickly worked its way into the growing legend of Machine Gun Kelly. And that legend spread quickly. Soon there were rumors around the entire country about a bank robber who signed all his heists in bullets. And these alarming tall tales piqued the interest of the relatively new Federal Bureau of Investigations. At the time, the FBI's reputation was badly sullied from years of corruption. When J. Edgar Hoover was made director in the early 1930s, he did his best to weed out the bad apples, but the stain was hard to remove. Despite the U.S. government's less-than-stellar reputation for law enforcement, some officials promised to clean house. During his presidential campaign, Franklin D. Roosevelt swore he'd declare war on the forces tearing the country apart. Once he took office, he was ready to make good. FDR wasn't just talking about the economic powers causing the Great Depression. He also meant to take on widespread corruption and the lawless gangland in the country's West, which meant Hoover needed to prepare his FBI agents for battle. However, public opinion just wasn't on their side. A series of poorly handled cases meant no one had confidence in the Bureau's abilities to solve cases. The most highly publicized of these bungles was the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. 
1932, aviator Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old son was taken from his home and held for ransom. Though the president himself put the FBI on the case, New Jersey law enforcement refused their help. It made Hoover and his men seem like laughable, ineffectual buffoons. And it happened at exactly the wrong time, because crime was on the rise in the U.S., and no one knew what was coming next. As the Depression wore on, robbing banks became less of a sure thing. By the early 30s, even they were running low on cash. At the same time, support for prohibition was dropping dramatically, and a repeal seemed imminent. That meant both of the Kellys' major income streams were on the verge of drying up. But they noticed the kidnapping racket was booming. It was the new easy way to make money. Snatch someone important, demand a ransom, and collect your cash. The more Catherine thought about it, the better of an idea it seemed like. Bank robbing was dangerous because there were so many variables. With kidnapping, she'd have more control. They could even name their price. It sounded like the perfect move. Though to be fair, it's possible Catherine was just eager to try something new. A 2013 study titled The Phenomenology of Specialization of Criminal Suspects found that age can play a critical role in a criminal's pattern of specialization. According to researchers, younger criminals tend to be generalists, while the older generation is made up of specialists. Specialists explore only one specific group of types of crime. Generalists, on the other hand, partake in more than one type of group. At 28, Catherine was still pretty young in her criminal career. As such, it makes sense that she was open to new schemes. She had no problem escalating her crimes or jumping around while looking for a specialization. George, however, was in his late 30s. He'd been bank robbing for long enough that jobs tended to run like clockwork. Switching this late in the game might have felt like courting disaster especially since he'd helped out on a kidnapping a couple of years earlier. The job had gone wrong, and his partner at the time killed one of the victims. It had left a bad taste in George's mouth. Despite that, in January of 1932, George attempted his second kidnapping, likely at Catherine's insistence. He and an old bootlegging pal nabbed a banker on his way home from work they left a note for his wife demanding $50,000 for her husband's safe return. Then George held the man for two days, but the money never came. Eventually, the victim convinced him there was no way his wife could come up with the cash. So, feeling like he had no other option, George let the man go in exchange for a promise that he'd raise the money himself. Obviously, that didn't happen. George wrote the man plenty of threatening letters, but they were all ignored. However, he didn't report George to the cops, so that was a plus. But ultimately, the whole thing was a waste of time. Catherine couldn't possibly have been pleased with the bungle, so she decided to take the reins and started studying the society pages of various newspapers. They read like a who's who of targets that would actually pay. The articles held everything she needed to know, from names and relations to a general idea of potential marks' routines and schedules. 
Armed with an actual plan this time, Catherine set her sights on the son of a Fort Worth oil man. She got to work setting all her ducks in a row, which included reaching out to a crooked detective she'd been cultivating a professional relationship with. At least, that's what she thought was happening. In reality, Detective Ed Weatherford had been monitoring the Kellys for years. He had hopes of turning Catherine into a valuable informant. Thinking they were on the same side, Catherine told Weatherford about her plan to kidnap the oil man's son. He gave his word that she could count on his help if things went sideways. And then he called the FBI. Thanks to the tip, the Dallas Bureau assigned a security detail to the intended target and his family, and the extra men were impossible to miss. The heat was so intense that Catherine called the whole thing off. As frustrating as these early attempts were, Catherine pushed on. She'd become accustomed to her lavish lifestyle and had decided that this was the way to keep a hold of it. Poring over the list of potential victims she'd collected from the society pages, Catherine started whittling down her list to a few well-chosen marks. With the right moves, she was sure they could net however much they'd need to set themselves up for life. The goal was a cool million dollars. It was as audacious a plan as anyone had ever dreamed. But if anyone could pull off such a feat, it was surely Catherine Kelly. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the daring crime that secured Catherine and Machine Gun Kelly their places in history. For more information on Catherine Kelly, among our sources, we found The Year of Fear by Joe Urschel, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson.